I'm Brent Leary. I'm Paul Greenberg. And we are the CRM players, but are we really? Because it's not Thursday. This Something feels different. Well, actually, that shows you how long it's been. I <laughs> literally just assumed it was Thursday. <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's Tuesday, and it's 2 o'clock East Coast time. And it's really sunny, and this makes for a really great day. It makes for a special CRM Players show, because we're calling this the CRM Players Pegaworld Edition. And we have a very special guest that we'll bring on in a few minutes to talk about Pegaworld and Pega and chess and a whole bunch of other stuff, I think. Wow, that, anyone who has even a clue about the history of Pega, you just gave away who it is <laughs> pretty, pretty easily. Well... I didn't say it was a big surprise or anything, but it's a good, <laughs> it's a good thing. Uh, so we are going to be talking with the CEO and founder of Pega Systems. We like to call it Pega, Alan Treffler, in a few minutes to talk yeah. about kind of the road leading up to Pega World and things that are going on with the company and the industry and basically anything we could think of because Alan is one of those guys that you can ask him a question and he will give you exactly what's on his mind. So I think this is going to be a great uh, set of time about an hour or so going back and forth and talking about things. And if you have any questions or any comments, you know, do what you usually do with this show, put them in there. We might, uh, we might, we might call them out. We, we might do a little something around that, but this is one of those times we get a chance to talk to one of the industry leaders and pioneers about what's going on. And so we're looking forward to doing that. Before we do that, though, you know, we, we have a couple of things we want to kind of pump. You know, we're getting ready to do beyond uh, this show. And actually, we got something coming up uh, what, a couple of days and Thursday or thereabouts. So let me uh, yeah. let me give you the, the on mic. The second on the second Thursday of this week. <laughs> yeah, second Thursday. Yeah, this is the first Thursday of this week. Is that exactly. how it is? <laughs> so why don't you tell us about what we have going on uh, this Thursday? And it's a special time, 1.30 p.m. Thursday. Yeah, this this one is amazing. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. I'm going to actually leave some of the uh, the people's name. We'll leave the names in suspense. We'll just sort of give you a, a, a picture. This this is, I think, unique. I don't think anyone's done this before that I know of. We're actually doing the uh, next quarter executive panel, CRM Players executive panel on on literally m a investment ventures acquisition i mean we're looking at the the market rather than the look we've talked to a million companies who have been acquired okay at one point or another they've been acquired they've done their a b gotten their c rounds their b rounds whatever but this is the people who give them the money <laughs> right these are the people who <laughs> literally figure out these are who we want to want to invest in one way or the other and what we're doing it is from a, a perspective that I don't think also anyone else has done, which is we're literally, I mean, we're, we're categorizing it in a lot of ways. We have uh, a venture capitalist. We have a uh, private equity fund representative. We have an angel investor. And we have an inve uh, 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 a person who is in charge of M&A for a company who's usually a company being invested in or acquired. But in this case, it's the they do the acquisitions and the investments themselves, which is in this case Whipro. So these guys, these people, are are for we'll get we'll get into more detail throughout the week. Just sign up for this one, come hear yeah. it, come listen. It's just going to be amazing, and the perspective is different. And they're going to be 
look, all you companies interested in being invested in, <laughs> ask the questions. Come and yeah. ask the questions. They're here for that. So, and the other thing, of course, because the executive panel, we have uh, the players in residence coming on, all three. Uh, we have also several analysts coming on who will be part of our rolling panels of analysts. So it's going to be killer. So it's this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Be there or I was going to say B square, but man, that's that's old. Yeah. Then that Not means you're that. And now that you say B square, that means you're talking about be a company that takes credit cards for small businesses. Yeah, I'm not doing that one either. So no, just just work. try to join us on Thursday. At right, that'll be the best. best okay, and I got to do want a quick shout out because not only are we getting ready to talk to Alan right now, but I get a chance to talk to Hayden Stafford, who is the president of Global Client Engagement for Pega, and that'll be next Monday, special time. Next Monday, 10 a.m. Eastern. I know it's kind of early for you West Coasters, but it's worth getting up, I think. So. so oh God, yeah. Hayden's <laughs> awesome. I've known him a long time. He is awesome. And he's, let's say this, his redhead indicates how much fun he actually is, which is a lot. Wait a minute. He really knows, he knows his that, stuff. He's <laughs> wait a minute, you just blew him up. Is that a thing? Is red hair an actual yeah, uh, a precursor or to tell you that somebody is funny or not? I mean, I had no idea that's how that worked. Well, that's because I made it up. <laughs> okay. I, I just thought it might have been a thing that I just didn't know about. Yeah, I'll, I'll, maybe Dennis Palmer can go into the genetic coding <laughs> of red hair to help us with that. You might do that on uh, next uh, next week's uh, Gilmore Gang. We, we'll see. That's, we'll do that. That'll work. All right. One last thing before we get into it. We are doing our very first uh, watch party a week from today. It's the Adobe Keynote. And we try to do uh, you know watch parties for you know, these big events. And so we, we, uh, we, we're expected to be, let's put it like this. We're expecting this time around this year, the uh, Adobe Summit keynote will probably look and feel a little different than it did last year. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, we, don't, we won't dwell on that. Too much. No, we will not. All right. Just wanted to get that out there. So next Tuesday, uh, join us for that as well. All right, I think we got everything out of the way. Let me uh, you know, let me get rid of this if I can. Here we go. All right, so now we're ready to talk about the talk with our guests. And we actually we went into the archives, and you know, YouTube is a good thing for going into the archives and and pulling out some like historical time capsules of what led up to Alan Treffler. Being where he is today, which is on our show, which of probably not as good as it just his sounded. Career. <laughs> that right. is the pinnacle of his entire career. There's no doubt about it. So we know that uh, you know the the family element in in the development of Pega Systems is really big and key. And so we have a few short clips that we wanted to play before we brought on Alan, just to kind of set the stage and to get the ball rolling. I'm going to go to. Uh, I want to go to this one because everybody knows that Alan is a, a chess master. You know, you, you, he like plays like 10 people at a time and beats all of them and, and stuff yeah. like that. But we some questions of, for them. Yeah, we, we definitely have questions for that. Uh, but some people may not know that he is uh, he actually got started in a family business doing restorations. And I thought uh, play a little clip on how that came about. The thing I took from the work in the restoration business 
And the thing that I think is super important is how to make sure you've got pride in your work. It was really critical to make sure that the pieces we were restoring were great from our point of view and from the point of view of the customers. Early in my career, as we were bootstrapping Pega and literally living hand to mouth, uh, I had the opportunity to work with a customer at one of the very largest banks in California. And she came into the office one day desolate. And she said, well, I have this, this baptismal plate that was given to my granddaughter and my daughter broke it yesterday. And I said, well, you know, if you bring it, I'll, I can take it home and fix it. And she looked at me perhaps uh, a bit wondering as a software you know, programmer why I thought that was something that I could do. But what I ended up doing was I said, well, bring it in. And on my next trip to California, I brought the materials you would need to do a repair. And in her office, we very carefully repaired the plate. And I think it convinced her that I might be good at software too. And that became one of our very largest customers over the next several years. All right. Uh, that, that goes back, not quite all the way back to the, the origin story, but this next clip, I think, gets really closer to it. We want to save this one uh, for the last before we bring Alan on, because I think this one, there's a lot of questions I have around this one. Ah, such good boys. I remember when they were kids and they decided to build a model airplane. I suggested that they ask their Uncle Philbert for help. Is this the plane you want? Uh-huh. Here's your plane, just as you asked for. But it doesn't have wings. Your drawing didn't say anything about wings. If you want wings, that's a change request. So come back in six months. Six months? <laughs> they were so disappointed. So I said to them, just because you get things for free, doesn't mean you are getting a good deal. Spend your money wisely, and you'll get the plane you want without waiting for Uncle Filbert. So, what's the moral of the story? Listen to your mother. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and on that note, uh, it's a pleasure bringing on the CEO and founder of, uh, gosh, Pega World, Pega, Pega World, Pega Alan Treffler. Alan, thank you for joining us. This is really great to have you with us today. Thanks, Brenda Paul. You know, you can just call us Pega. That's the, the name <laughs> you go by. But um, that little clip is a fraction of a four-minute video that uh, if, if people want to find, there are four of them. You can Google Mother Treffler. You can actually find them on the Pega website. Um, they're actually, the first two were done behind my back <laughs> by Don yeah. Sherman, Mike Brenner, and my brother. And they were sprung <laughs> on me in front of a thousand people. And they're, they're really pretty, they're really pretty funny, I actually think. They're great, they're great. Uh, but they also bring up questions. 
Like I watched the full four minute clip. Did your brother was he always a big snacker? Because in pieces of that clip, every time you turn around and they focus it back to you and your brother, he was always eating something different. I was like, well, he's a snacker. No, well, I used to bitch at him because I I thought he could lose a few pounds, um, and as revenge. He put himself constantly eating in those little clips there. But, you know, the irony now is I'm the guy who needs to lose a few pounds, and he got himself into perfect shape. So, you know, I, I guess you have to be careful what you point at. You might come back. Those, those are literally classics. I'm not kidding. I actually remember yeah. being at a Peggle World years ago, and you and I were in the middle of, like, a little bit of a public battle. It was a fun one, but it was a public battle. And you flipped it to that video, and the audience just went crazy. They loved it. You just like you just did this quick flip over to. It was the full version of that video, and I had never seen it until that moment. And I was like, "Wow, I'm I. What could I say? I mean, I grew up in a let's call it a household with a um, slightly different but similar enough mother, <laughs> right? You know, so I totally got it." Was your uncle Filbert? Was he the precursor to the the scientists in Back to the Future? Because there's uh, know, kind I think, of a similar... I, I think that there was some inspiration taken from that, <laughs> but that was actually the second one. The first one is the one about the train set, which uh, uh, looks, yeah. looks eerily like IBM and Oracle back in the day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, listen, I. Uh, one thing I've always seen about Pega, and this is something that's always consistently impressed me, was if I go all the way back to Pega's earliest history, you know, and I've seen it pretty much since, not the beginning, but, you know, close enough to it. Um, you know, if people are taking the kind of big picture view of Pega back then, people would always say about you, it's BPM, they're process focused, they're aimed at you know, efficiencies and improvements, and they scale really well, and so on and so forth. And if I'm giving it a, let's say the broad, just a term for early days, we would call it, say, mechanical, okay? That's a compliment, by the way, not an insult. Now I look at Pega, and it's focused around customer engagement and behaviors and identifying it pretty much every level it, how a customer is thinking and how to personalize the interactions with them. And, and you've gone from effectively mechanical to emotional. You've gone from a left brain to a right brain. But the thing that blew me away the most, and it's consistently done this, is that you never lost a beat in your corporate narrative from year to year. I mean, typically when a company makes a, uh, let's say, a public change that, that dramatic looking, they lose customers. They churn because the customers say, well, they're not serving us anymore. You guys, your churn rate's almost zero, right? You, you, over the, it's probably about six, seven, eight years, you know, even 10 maybe, you made this transition, but it went from like uh, mechanical to CRM-ish to CRM to customer experience to customer engagement, never missed a beat. How, how did that thinking even evolve? I, I just, what was going on in your mind and the mind of your, you know, your, uh, your team to get there without, without, losing any uh, customers. Well, well, thank you for that. And I, I do, you know, one of the things that I'm really proud of is that my first two customers who went live in 1984, God forbid, 
are still customers to this day. Bank of America and Citibank and much larger customers. We're still doing the stuff we did for them originally, though uh, literally in both cases, many dozens of other things as well. I I think part of it was the understanding that there is a continuum that reaches out from the core skill set we had of being able to get work done to touching the actual clients and touching what the clients are aspiring for and trying to do. And with the introduction over the years as we have of being able to do the front office CRM type things, but understanding it really wants to be hooked in to being able to do things end to end and then adding the AI capabilities and a lot of the adaptive analytics and other things that literally got you into the mind of your customers or their customers. I, you know, I, I think there is a continuum there and we've been very careful, unlike a lot of companies in this business, to not just go out and acquire a bunch of crap, but when we buy something as a company, it's because it's consistent with that end-to-end vision. And um, you know, I think that is, uh, you know, it's, it's very important because what we're looking to do is create a holistic vision for our customers, and you know, that's what's kept us, I think, honest and you know, really engaged. So, so how has that vision that you have for your customers and how you interact with them? How has this pandemic, how has the last 12, 13 months affected that, uh, that image? And also go back to that, that first clip about you starting out with restoration and how that played a role in you getting that first client. It seems like this has been a, a 12, 13 month restoration process <laughs> for customers. So maybe you could talk about it from that perspective as well. Well, I don't think the customers are fully restored yet, but no. you know, the, it's interesting because in the coming year, that business, um, which is the restoration business, um, is going to have its hundredth anniversary wow. Wow. as a family business. So I'm a first generation American on my father's side. He came after having you know survived the war, which was uh, we're, we're we're good at surviving, I would say, as travelers. We're not always smart about when to leave, you know, because my my parents on my mother on the other side, um, her parents came after having survived the Russian Revolution. So you know we we we're scrappy, but you know we, sometimes it's better to get out early. Anyway, um, he started that business, and that business is very dear because literally, you know, with with his hands. My father, who never actually graduated high school, was able to put two kids through college and, and, and build a pretty amazing life for himself. But it also gave me an opportunity to work in close proximity with customers. And though I wasn't really terrific at the restoration, so it was never going to be a business I was going to be skilled enough to go into, it did provide me a lot of uh, sort of access to individual customer interactions from a very young age. And I think that was that was pretty important to my early development and to the values I think we have as a company. So what kind of, you were writing, well, I mean, over let's say over the last year, actually, I noticed you guys have been involved in things like vaccination management and a number of other things to really support people throughout the pandemic. And you have actually, uh, in general, uh, uh, an interesting philanthropic model, too, which is that you actually are supporting locally more than you support, even more than you support globally, meaning in it, wherever you are, wherever you have people, you tend to be supporting important projects locally. And obviously, given we're in a global pandemic and by just having 
enormous impacts in every locale in the world. Uh, I know you guys have been very active. How is that, on the one hand, how did you manage to effectively, and as this began becoming clearly, it's going to be here a while, how did you manage to sort of ramp up and make decisions on what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it to support the world, you know, uh, in the midst of all this? I mean, how did that work? Well, I, I think it's good for people as individuals and companies to really work to support the people in their communities. I think you have the greater visibility. It's it's easier easier to develop confidence that what you're doing is actually going to have an impact. You know, relative to the question you asked a moment ago about the pandemic, you know, I I was pretty worried for the first 48 hours about how things were going to work out. I was in uh, Europe the last week, the second week of March, which was the last week that travel was really allowed, and I scampered back from uh, Amsterdam, you know, just under the, the sort of closing of the borders. And we didn't really know what was going to happen because we had historically been very physically engaged with a lot of our customers, you know, having, having close to 6,000 people all over the world, putting people in conference rooms with customers at the whiteboard, brainstorming, thinking about their futures. How do you do that in a world where, you know, you can't get there and customers don't want to be in the room with you anyway? But after about 72 hours, I was just really amazed with how our team just, you know, hunkered down, figured out how to do things virtually, figured out how to create those collaboration ses sessions on media such as this, and to do it really, really effectively. So we were, we were fortunate, you know, the pandemic has gotten everybody to realize that digital transformation is a must. And I, I think that has both you know, immediate impact where we have helped, you know, for example, I'm talking to somebody about you know, the German government suddenly needed to be able to handle, you know, massive crises in business where they've never had anything like that before. And they needed to take hundreds of thousands of, you know, help applications from these businesses. You know, we got that system from concept to live in five days. Wow. And we're able to, it, it's actually, it led to something that's never happened before in over 30 years of business. They actually put out a press release about how good they, you know, how, how well they were handling this. And they named us by name in the press release, you know, and so normally you have to go argue with customers to be able to get them to put a press release out. Uh, you know, these guys were actually so thrilled with what happened that they went and themselves promoted it. Um, and then brought us into the rest of the German government where we're doing lots of stuff now. So, you know, there are opportunities that come along with crises for certain businesses. And we're lucky enough to be one of the ones that has been able to, to both ourselves grow during this pandemic, but also help other organizations, you know, stabilize and do a better job of serving their constituencies. So you mentioned that the, the acceleration of digital transformation, I think that's across the board. Almost every company that I've heard from, but how how has your customers changed the definition of what they viewed this, uh, digital transformation as? And yeah, they know they had to speed it up, but what did they have to change in order to kind of stay afloat in what's going on here? So it's interesting because I think there are some aspects of this that are going to have ramifications long after the pandemic is done, and and I think we all recognize this. But one of them is a lot of them realized that the way they were digitally transforming wasn't going to be the long-term vision for how they should do it. That there was just too much bailing wire, 
you know, too many Uncle Filberts, um, you know, doing things that were unsustainable. And, you know, what's happened and what's interesting is some of them clearly have changed their long-term agendas. So it's not even what's happening in the moment for us or over the last 12 or 18 months. You know, it's really, they understand that they're going to have to look differently at how they connect their customers, their front offices, their customers' intent. You know, we, we talk sometimes about moving from customer engagement that is reactive, which is the way it's historically been, to proactive and even preemptive. How do you figure out even ahead of your customer knowing what your customer is going to want so that you can really do an extraordinary job of meeting their needs? I know you guys have become very visionary too. You have, uh, from that standpoint, first, I remember when you wrote your book back, was it 2014, uh, Bill for Change? I actually did a endorsement for the book. So I read the, the manuscript you know, early and it pretty much, I mean, it, it focused around customer engagement, which actually was kind of amazing given that, that at that time you were focused on customer experience. I remember that because you had that, amazing i can't remember her name that woman from lloyd's of london who spoke at pega world on it um she was great and so uh you know but that book was kind of i call it prescient but it wasn't i wasn't it was meant to be more framework you know help build a framework around engagement but that engagement framework that you outlined in the book tends to apply very well to current things and you know to the current situation and that then translated from a from the standpoint of your own technology offerings into these very visionary technology offerings, empathetic AI, self-healing RPA, and autonomous customer service. And the thing that impresses me no end about that is that of those three, two of them are already in production. They're not just visions, right? They're literally in production already. And the third one, autonomous customer service, is on the way. So you know, that, so that's another area that interests me a great deal from your standpoint. How do you take effectively your vision and make it directly, bring it to, bring it to life, basically? Because that's something a lot of companies fail to do. So their vision just ends up being more or less science fiction, right? So, well, yeah, you know, I think, I think that we try to balance being visionary and being, you know, very pragmatic. And some people see this as a contradiction. We just see it as a continuum. I think the most important part is having lots of other visionary people with you. So it's not my vision, but it, it's really a collective vision so that, uh, you know, we're able to progress and we're able to challenge ourselves and each other to, to try to come up with the right nuances to keep ourselves on course. And, uh, you know, it's been interesting because so much has changed in the last, uh, you know, frankly, in the last 30 something years. But the thing that hasn't changed is that the way that most companies use technology is just too primitive and too backwards. The way businesses and IT work together is more like they typically don't work together. And, you know, I actually think that computer science, so, so you know, that's my background, uh, has been enormously disappointing. And a big part of what we're trying to do is actually realize, I, I see you nodding, Brad. Let me, let me sort of give you an example of what I mean. If you look at other industries, for example, look at computer-aided design and manufacturing. So you look at the creation of actual goods, 
it's come unbelievably in the last 35 years, right? Yeah, people now will will you know draw a, a wireframe of something they want, connect it to a 3D printer. You get to go from concept to specialization to actual realization instantly and continuously. Take a look at what Pixar does, where they create models of of characters and and create brilliant, you know, just brilliant movies literally by getting the computer to do the hard work of execution so people can think about needs, desires, goals, et cetera. In software, it's all BS. In software, it's the opposite, right? We've made it harder and more complicated to engage customers or build backend systems or hook it all together. You know, the world of the cloud, which we love, right? We're all in, but you go take a look at the you know, AWS or the Azure or the Google Cloud Platform, all of which we run on, uh, you go take a look at their catalogs of, of what's available. It is mind-blowingly complex. And it is so different from how a business person thinks about how they want to serve a customer or how they want to fulfill a, a, a product promise. Our mission is how do we create an approach based on models that lets us do in the customer experience and in the software realm, what you've seen so successfully done in in other industries. So let's go right to the low code, no code, because and, and the RPA and all these all these topics and subjects that have been thrown around. I, I mean, you're seeing companies like UiPath, you know, their valuation is just skyrocketing. Everybody I've talked to over the last couple of months, if the, the three letters RPA didn't come up, it's well, they came up, maybe it was RAP or something like that, but it was always <laughs> coming up. Talk about what, you know, in the context of what you just talked about, how how uh, important is it for the industry to get this stuff right um, in terms of making it easier for actual business folks to automate their own processes and workflows instead of having to depend on IT folks who are kind of overworked and, and there's not enough of these folks to actually get all the things that people are looking to get done at this point. Well, you know, I think you need to look at how you want to serve customers from what we described from the center out. So a lot of this low code stuff is really just the next generation of Lotus Notes. For those of you who've been around long enough to know what Lotus Notes was, it was going to be the great liberator of the business. And it turned out to be the great creator of technical debt. Right. And, and, you know, those are people, frankly, who like were over obsessed on how do I create a couple of forms and how in a low code way I push them through something. So, you know, that mistake is being actually replicated almost perfectly by a lot of the low code stuff. Uh, the, the other delusion has to do with the thought that dropping little robots, you know, RPA robots, in my back office to cut and paste between systems is somehow going to make my business you know customer oriented i mean all you all you're doing we used to call it screen scraping 25 years ago 20 years ago right all you're doing you used to have a you know a little software program like rumba that would go and cut and paste from this you know system to this system neither of those are really focused on outcomes so when we talk about being sent around, we say, look, what is the business trying to do? And then how do you define that as a business person? How do you define that as a business person 
independent of channels and independent of whether you drop a little robot in someplace, which we're not anti-robot, they're just not going to revolutionize your business. You need a brain in your business, right? That's what, and all the work we've done with AI is to make that brain adaptive and, and not just powerful, uh, but also smart in terms of changing. You need process automation in the heart of your business. And you need what we call case management in the heart of your business, because that's what records the decisions you made and the processes you executed. And by putting those all together in a common model, I think we're able to have the best of all worlds. We'll be able to reach out to the customer with uh, you know, adaptive AI and other types of things that really make the system seem smart. We're able to not make you rip out all your existing front end, but complement them. And we're able to not say you're gonna drop robots in and somehow have an organized business. But instead, if you need a robot because you don't have an API, use that. But let's face it, if you had an API, a programming interface, you'd never use a robot. The robots are you know, less reliable and slower. So I think we're beautifully positioned with this center out way of thinking to get business focused on business outcomes. And that will reduce complexity, which is one of the things that's just destroying most businesses. That will improve agility and it will do it in a way that's you know not all of these you know, microservices mir miraculously reconfiguring themselves in ways that frankly they they don't. You know, last year uh, we came up with a couple of dozen new computer languages. Who the hell needs more computer language? I mean, you know, the 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 reality is we need to make things clearer and simpler and more business effective. And as an industry, the software industry has just become too enraptured with you know complex cloud architectures data scientists all sorts of other folks who we should be working to simplify but instead are almost celebrating that complexity and you know i think you mentioned that there are not enough of them well there's not enough of any of these folks <laughs> and and you know after three years your brilliant new system has become technical debt you know and and i just think it's a mess from our point of view, it's a great opportunity. So how do you deal with then, um, so one of the things that is becoming increasingly interesting and in some cases well executed is the idea of citizen, they, it's being called citizen apps basically, meaning business, no ordinary business people can actually put together things they need and can use well. Now, going to the Lotus Notes analogy, that one promised to do the same thing. I look, look, the first thing I ever did in tech was build a Lotus Notes practice, right? And <laughs> it was a wildly successful one, actually. Uh, and I remember this guy from Coopers and Library telling me the problem they had was not the use of Lotus Notes as a platform, was managing the whole thing, because he, Coopers and Library had 2,000 applications built by, in, by internal people for their departments, and they just built them right and there was nothing to control anything so kind of got out of hand on the other hand we've come a long way since then and we really have one way or the other even if the problem is still potentially the same i think that the possibility of citizen apps is potentially something that could be a real value if it's done well well but the the, the thing that lotus notes missed was that you need a platform for the citizen engagement and citizens apps. So we love the idea of citizen developers. We just think it should be on something that has enterprise characteristics. 
enterprise characteristics around security, enterprise characteristics around scalability, enterprise characteristics like reuse. So that if somebody builds something or an interface exists, whatever, the next citizen gets to take advantage of that and build from a higher plane. The, the way lots of this low code stuff is being done now is it's actually worse than the Lotus Notes conundrum because um, Lotus Notes was actually really a pretty good product. I didn't realize, Paul, that you'd specialized in that. But, <laughs> First you know, thing I ever did in tech. <laughs> you know, in its, in its era, I was actually pretty concerned that some of what Lotus Notes was going to do was going to impinge on our vision and our future if they had decided to go more enterprise. But in fact, they didn't. And then, of course, you know, they were acquired. And we know what happens when that happens, right? Well, that's exactly what killed them, really. IBM basically killed Lotus, right? Lotus was actually doing pretty well prior to that. Yeah, well, you know, they, they'd had that sort of uh, misstep around jazz yeah. and not properly respecting, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what was going to happen with Excel and Microsoft there, yep. there yep. as well. So, you know, I think there are lots of lessons to be taken from that ancient history. Uh, <laughs> Nice. I, I saw one of the questions popped up to ask me if my first systems ran on AS400s, which was the, and now it was just, uh, somebody who asked that sort of esoteric question deserves an answer. It was IBM, <laughs> it was DECVAXs and IBM CICS. Those oh, were the original yeah. platforms. My so, first job was I heard working that, on I think you were older than me, but I know I'm older than you. So. Well, <laughs> let's, let's just, let's just say, um, it's good to be old and wise, particularly circumstances, <laughs> Paul. I'm with you there. Hey, before I jump in, I want to start doing a little, uh, uh, getting a preview of what's going to happen in Pega World. But we did have a question from uh, one of our players in residence, Anand Thakur. He said, how do you see no code different from Pixar's model to character solution? Both enable people spend more time creating and less tech juggling. Well, I think, I think conceptually what we're doing is very analogous. We have software that writes software. They have software that draws movies. So, you know, they can obsess about how they get, you know, the, the musician to heaven and back again, as opposed to having to have people, you know, worry about you know, drawing it by hand like they like they used to in the early, early printers. <laughs> I think that that's a perfect example of a model driven style, which which we would apply. Makes sense. great. So uh, last year, after you know the shutdown happened and everybody had to cancel their live events and start trying to put together a virtual event, and you guys, on top of having to do that, this last year was going to be the first year that Pega World was going to move from Vegas to Boston. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Now, uh, the very first set of these new virtual industry events that came out, Let's just say they left a little bit to be desired on the look and feel and how how they came about. You know, the, the term, uh, you know, kind of like under siege and, you know, <laughs> holding up a newspaper to show that today's date and that they are, they're hostage and still right. alive. There was a lot right. of that discussion going on. But what we really marveled at was how Pega World, who, like I said, was already in the transition of moving from Vegas to Boston and then had to do this additional move of going virtual. You guys actually pulled off what we thought was the first instance 
of a virtual event in the industry actually being starting to take uh, advantage of what the virtual aspects of a conference could have, could show. And we talked to Don Sherman, I think it was like the week before that. And the phrase, I know Paul loves this phrase. He, he went from, you know, the thematic view to the no, cinematic no. view. Oh, was the, from, I thought it was the, from a theatrical. Oh, theatrical no. view to the theatrical cinematic. The cinematic. So and, it, because, be yeah, and, and in regards, you can't try to present the same thing uh, that you would normally present when you're 10,000 people in the audience than when it's somebody sitting in their home office with about five different screens that could take their attention at any point in time away from what you're trying to do. And so talk about how how this year's Pega World kind of builds off of that. And, and, and what are the themes and what are the things that you're hoping to show to the customers and, and the prospects out there? Well, you know, we were we were really fortunate in having people like Don and Mike Brenner who were behind those Mother Truffler videos. Yeah. Yep. You know, um, you know, if you actually think about it, to to be able to say, whoa, we're gonna have to shift this and change this massively in in literally weeks. And the first thing I think they decided um, <clears throat> is we don't want to hold people hostage for days. You know, <laughs> I think. Right. I think a lot of folks decided that they were just going to you know, take their talking heads and, and take their multi-day you know, events and just put them online, which was uh, a disaster. Right. I mean, if you actually look at them, though, some people are still doing this disaster, which is which is kind of, <laughs> you know, they they realized that they had to cut it down to be about two and a half hours that we were going to have to get really compact. We were going to try to use the medium to to perhaps both dive deeper, but also stay more conceptual. And you know, I I think, especially given the time frame, they did a terrific job of orchestrating that transition, um, and and deserve enormous credit for that. This year, we're trying to take it up to a whole nother level again. So actually, moving it to. So I'm not going to give anything away, but let's just say we're trying a different mode of engagement and a style that is also different from what we've seen other shows um, do. And we're going to both try to make sure we can operate conceptually. So there are always there are ideas that are important and sort of elevate the conversation, but then at the same time be able to punch through to answer questions like, what is conversational AI about? How do you actually bring AI into the conversation of uh, an organization and their customer and do that at the next level and actually be able to demonstrate concepts as it relates to AI, as it relates to customer engagement and as it relates to intelligent automation, sort of providing the real sort of end-to-end -end approach to customer service and acquisition. You know, one thing you guys did that I thought was methodologically, I'll call it brilliant, uh, last year, and I think other a few others actually kind of adopted it based on what you did was, you know, you took the tracks and you limited them to roughly ten minutes each, which oh, was right. absolutely incredible because <laughs> you were understand. Well, that was the well. Of course, I'm notorious for like going over my time, so I I actually went eleven and a half minutes, right? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I did, right? So um, so. I, I, what was brilliant, of course, is you knew that 
you know, basically behaviors become effectively, everyone's become kind of attention deficit, right? Uh, and, and what people also don't realize is everyone's behavior is now pretty much tabbed, meaning it's, they have multiple tabs up while they're still watching you, right? And they're flipping from one to the other. So when you keep them down into these manageable chunks of time, people will concentrate for that time and they'll get more out of it than if it was a half hour where they're just flipping back and forth on the tabs, right? And so I, that to me was, and Brent and I talked about it quite a bit actually over the year, was kind of brilliant really. And I, I saw a few other companies adopt that and it was clearly adopted from you, but a, a lot of other ones still held to the 30 minute you know, thing and it doesn't work. Yeah, no, it becomes it becomes numb. And by the way, I think you're better off having short things that engage someone's attention as opposed to having like a lecture series. You know, the good thing that's good about this is it's dynamic. We, I have no idea where you guys are going, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, what, believe me. I'm but you know what? That, no. That's great. You know, and I have to say this. Sometimes we we have we invite guests, and you know, pretty senior level folks like yourself, and and we're not talking directly to them on the lead up. We're talking to their like, you know, PR folks and things. And the first thing they ask us, can we get a, a, a list of questions? <laughs> uh, you know, and the beauty of doing this with you is nobody asked us a thing because they know you. No. They, they, they know that's the last thing you need is a list of questions. You know. Well, I drive my I drive my head of uh, PR. Is she's wonderful. I drive her crazy because she keeps <laughs> wanting to prepare me. And I yeah. keep explaining that if I don't have the answers, uh, but I think she's afraid that I might go Elon Musk someday. <laughs> <laughs> and who knows? Maybe, maybe that should be a resolution for the coming year. You know that. that, that. So you know he has all the answers. He doesn't necessarily give them in the right way. I would say. Right. But yeah. uh, you know, look, the most important thing I think for. Um, engaging with clients or having any event, you know, whether it's a produced one like Pega or a discussion like this, is you got to be genuine, right? It's, it's, you got to be you got to be true to the material and true to the engagement with whoever it is you're engaging with. And you know, if 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 you do that, then you don't need to know the questions. Yes. <laughs> so I do have I have a question now, <laughs> and so, I don't know. <laughs> so, so what industry deficiencies, if any, have been exposed by the pandemic? Oh, slews of, you know, inefficiencies. The first is how much difficulty organizations have handling exceptions, right? The, mm. the pre-pandemic world, we had slews of exceptions and the mechanisms for dealing with them were pretty ad hoc. What we've now seen is in a world where people are no longer you know, physically adjacent, those exceptions is really easy to have stuff fall on the floor. You know, one of the things that's actually helped drive our business is a lot of companies relied on sort of anecdotal phone calls and emails to people, you know, in between, between each other. And it, very, very hard in a in a you know distributed environment like we are today to be able to actually get cogent processes and cogent outcomes out of that and be able to see what's going on you know so 
I, I think you know this has shown enormous gaps in in terms of the way businesses work, and you know it's also shown enormous rifts. I think in the way society works too, because you know the 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 suffering. You know the way I describe it, we're all in the same. I, I didn't originate this, so I'm not claiming authorship. But you know we're all in the same storm, but we're in very different boats. And you've you've really seen. Uh, you, you talked about our, our local efforts. We've worked hard with a lot of the sort of local restaurants and providers and other sort of folks in our area to to make sure that we were still, you know, st going and, and trying to do our best in a world where we were afraid to sit at a table. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I think that this has shown that there's an enormous amount mm -hmm. of uh, folks who are just disproportionately crushed by this. And you know, I'm hoping that now, as we seem to be crossing that that mass vaccination point, we're going to be able to to sort of refurbish some of those parts of our um, economy and society. I think it's really important. Well, to keep in mind. don't you? I, I don't remember if it's Pego or you, your family, but you have a foundation yep. that's handling a lot of these local efforts in Boston areas, in particular. What what talk about that a little bit? Well, we're doing a lot of work to try to serve. Or, or, or particularly in the area of healthcare, there's lots of communities that, you know, frankly have you know, grossly inadequate testing for things like cancer screening. And sometimes there's ignorance and a lack of sort of understanding of how important it is to take preventative care. And so we've done a lot of work in that sort of area um, to, to really try to do that outside of the pandemic. Since the pandemic hit, both Peg as a company and, and us personally, you know, have done a lot of work to uh, really try to bolster some of the emergency services in other areas that have had problems. I'm, I'm not one of those folks, though. I don't expect you'll ever see my name on the side of a hospital. You know, one of, one of the values my father believed was that charity is something um, that is not to be overly celebrated. It's simply to be done. And, you know, I think that uh, yeah, we don't we don't spend a lot of time trying to get publicity for the things that we're doing. Ultimately, though, uh, I think there's a lot all of us need to do to to try to not just help outsiders, but even inside our company. We've worked really hard to try to support the the families that have been under enormous stress. For example, we uh, you know one of the big questions when this all broke is you know what are you going to do about the people who have no useful jobs? We, you know, we have a handful of travel coordinators. There was no, there was no travel to be coordinated all, all of a sudden, right? And there are slews of things that radically changed. And we said right from the inception that we were in the fortunate position that we were going to be able to, to support them, right, collectively. And so we didn't do a lot of what we saw other companies do, which was, you know, some of them had no choices. So we fortunately had that choice and were able to, to, to you know, try to care for our own staff as well as doing work for our community. So, uh, let me, I'm, look, you're a, I'm going to go to a whole other area now. You're a uh, chess master and you're not playing, you're not playing in person right now. How are you playing? Well, you know, I don't play much right now. Uh, I was, uh, it, 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 it's kind of funny because I just got an email from somebody uh, literally yesterday, who sent me a clipping from the New York Times thanking me for having submitted a game I played with him in high school. 
literally. And he was thrilled uh, because it was the only game he got published in the New York Times, and he remembers it to this day. Kinda, and he sent me the game. It was kind of fun to actually go back and 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 and, and look at it. Uh, but I'm not playing much. You know, the the amount, the most of the chess I used to do was like at Pega World. I used to play a a 20 person simultaneous against 20 clients and which was always a big hit uh, did you ever lose oh yeah yeah i you know compared to how i was when i was playing seriously you know in college uh, i really i let's, let's just say that not all of those brain cells or skills have been retained but i can still play reasonably <laughs> well <laughs> didn't you didn't you i mean you i think you weren't you like co-champ in 1975? Yeah, in, in, in college, I uh, was co-champion of something called the World Open, which was the largest chess tournament uh, at that time. I was a sophomore in college, you know, tied for first place. There was probably 11, 1,200 people there with a famous international grandmaster named Pal Benko. And I promptly decided that was a good time to retire. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Hey, I, we're, we're getting close to the top of the hour. I know we, you know, we got to let you go soon. So I just want to, there's, there's one question in particular I have to ask um, because we ask all our guests this, but before we do that, I want to play a clip and then I want to ask you a question based on this clip. So, yeah. Ultimate success will be judged by the extent to which the culture persists, grows, evolves. And hopefully I've done a good job of leading by example and that it won't be static after whatever point in the future I'm no longer here. Evolving, or as we like to say, building for change, I think is absolutely central to any success. All right. Wise words by a wise man. Um, so Trademark, that, too. Uh, Trademark, too. Build <laughs> is our company tagline. So uh, There it is. <laughs> All right, so I got to ask this question before my last question is. So we saw Jeff Bezos uh, sign off or announce that he's going to hang him up as the CEO. Uh, there's been some speculation around it. Mark Benioff is in the process of doing that as well. You're, what, 36 years into this? Uh, are, are you getting close to making any announcements that we should know about? Well, do I look like I've lost my enthusiasm, <laughs> I guess I would, I would yeah. say. Look, um, as, as long as you can have pride in your work, as I said earlier, and feel that you're doing something constructive and having the, the privilege of working with with a group of people who challenges you and, and you know, helps you evolve, I, I think that's something that I could do. Um, you know, I've, I've actually said sometimes that my exit strategy is a pine box. <laughs> well, that's cheerful. That says it all. Right that, by uh, the way, is an original. Somebody asked me what strategy That's was. not trademark. That's not a tagline. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've come to the time where I have to ask uh, this is a big question. And Very you notice we we had to hold this till the end because if you had answered it the wrong way, I'd, I'd hate to think what would happen. But um, do you have a, a favorite uh, NFL team? Oh. You know, you're not going to like the answer, right. but you know, it's the Patriots. 
Though lately I've been cheering for Tampa Bay, you know, so uh, that's like a double-edged sword that you just wow. rip right from one end to the other. <laughs> I just have to make sure there's one thing that you see here. Again, I can't see that. I knew it was a high-risk answer. <laughs> that is literally the kind of answer to get you thrown out of shows. Yeah, <laughs> Paul, I, I want you to know how much empathy I have for you. Yeah, okay. you really think I worry? <laughs> We'll see how this ends up at the end of the year. <laughs> oh, there. boy. Boy. All know. right. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, oh, just one last thing. Uh, you guys recently hit the billion-dollar rev annual revenue mark, which congratulations for that. Uh, there is a rumor going around that the reason that that really happened was uh, the uh, Layer Cakes won the inaugural BYOB award, and that kind of catapulted things. Is, is there any truth to that? Well, I think it's more, you're going to see the results of the Layer Cakes winning your, your Bring Your Own Band Award, um, I think, in the next year or two. So I'm just counting on that accelerating. That's what I'll tell you. <laughs> but that was quite some contest you guys put on. And, uh, and, and the Layer Cakes, I think, really uh, showed their you know, depth. That's a bit of a bad on with they Layer. Were, look, wow. They were and he, you were doing amazing. so well, man. <laughs> We're gonna even for that last statement. We're gonna forgive you, the Patriots and the Red Sox. Oh, uh, thank you for that. I appreciate. <laughs> it. We'll forgive you. No, we we thought it, they they did an awesome job and the the oh. cinematic. I mean, you had the drones and you had the yacht and you, I mean, it was beautifully done. Well, they do that every weekend. I don't know what what, <laughs> <laughs> what you think, but you got in the harbor, you know, play a couple of riffs. That's just normal. You don't pull that up once. So They're for their amazing. next set of videos, are we going to be seeing you in there? I mean, are you? Do you have any musical, you know, talent going um, on? I'll, I'll wrap that up by telling you something that very few people in the universe know, and will I think answer your question implicitly <laughs> and explicitly. Uh, my instrument of choice growing up was the accordion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that does say it all there. <laughs> You know, Polish father and all of that. But let's just, let's just say that I was never a master of the accordion or any other instrument that I that I played. Well, you, you could fall back on the chest, so that was a good thing. Uh, yeah, we'll have to. Or, or, or who knows? Maybe I can start hosting a radio show. There it is. That's that, a good idea, actually. And on that note, this has been great. I really Amazing. thoroughly enjoyed this hour. And it's always a pleasure to speak to somebody who doesn't have to, you know, check to see if they're saying things right. You just say what's on your mind, and we appreciate that. Don't worry well, about that. I, I think you kind of live up to that standard too, Brent, don't you? <laughs> uh, when it comes to, like, Patriots fans, yeah, I usually do. But <laughs> but this has been great. Thanks again for doing this, and uh, can't wait to, to check out Pega World. That's May 4th. The keynote is May 4th, right? Like uh, May 4th? Well, the whole thing is May 4th. Remember, it's right. just going to be two and a half fun-packed hours. So um, please, you know, go to pegaworld.com, sign up, you know, and uh, we promise you it will be interesting. And okay. I think you'll find a lot of new stuff that's coming, which will be cool. Looking forward to that one. I am. I really am. Absolutely. Well, on behalf of Alan Treffler, I'm Brent Leary. I'm Paul Greenberg. We are the CRM players. And my God, we actually will see you in like two days. Usually we sign off for the week, but you'll see us in two days, so. I hope you see us and we see you two days. Take care. Thanks again. Take care, folks.